Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Welcome to another episode of Stargate Archives. This week, an episode of Stargate Theatre. Yeah, I'm doing quite a lot of Stargate Theatre at the moment, because they're easy. <laughs> this week I'm going to be looking at the 2008 movie, The Lost Treasure of the Grand Canyon, starring Michael Shanks and Shannon Doherty. This movie premiered in the US December 20th, 2008, and in Russia March 14th, 2010, at its DVD debut May 26th, 2009. Directed by Farhad Mann, he's worked on The Listener, Regenesis, Wildcard and Murdoch Mysteries, so definitely come up the ladder in terms of productions. And this movie was written by Clay Carmouche. He's written video games, Destiny and Destiny 2, as well as working on State of Decay 2. The music composer, Michael Nielsen. He composed music for Playing Cupid, Undercover Wife, No End of Hallmark Movies and The Excellent Drone. Rotten Tomato scores, well, once again, no critic scores. I don't think critics like these movies. If it's not got a theatrical release, they're not interested. Audience score, though, 15%, so not good. <laughs> I do own this movie on DVD, if you are interested. The filming took place in British Columbia, Thompson, Nicola region, and Kamloops. While it may not have been the Grand Canyon, at least it looked like it. And let's face it, one big brown hole in the ground looks very much like another, as long as you don't go for the wide shots. Okay then, folk, let's jump straight into The Lost Treasure of the Grand Canyon. The movie opens with Stars Media and Front Street Pictures. We get a very nice panpipe and percussion theme music. Good graphics as well. I like the intro. Right, so we get close-up of some canyon walls. Note. Not a wide shot, only close up. We see the inside of a cave and there's a native of the region painting a picture. It looks like some sort of throne, a being on the throne and bodies at their feet, which is a bit worrying. We then see three warriors, shields, spears, running along a road, which is obviously a road made by four-wheel vehicles. But let's not worry about that. We're back in another cave, group of Western explorers. They're armed, some of them are wounded. They seem to be a little scared. Something is after them. We see other natives entering the cave system. Again, bows and arrows, spears. They catch up with two of the westerners, kill them. A chase ensues. Brief standoff. Bullets are fired. Arrows are fired. Casualties pretty much equal on both sides. And then the westerners are trapped. It looks like it's the end for them. But suddenly, lightning flashes. A growl is heard echoing throughout the chambers. And suddenly, everybody, it doesn't matter who they are, looks terrified and people start getting killed. Ripped to shreds. We see at least three people eaten <laughs> at that. The leader of the expedition, I believe, is uh, Dr. Samuel Jordan, played by Duncan Fraser. Duncan played Professor Langford in the Stargate SG-1 episode, The Torment of Tantalus. So, he has his place in the Stargate franchise. He's hiding from whatever is killing his people. He pulls out a, a locket. And we see a picture of a young woman, his daughter, I believe, before that gets splattered with blood. Fade to black. We see a nice wide shot of the canyon and a small camp, half a dozen tents, about 20 or 30 men, engaged in archaeology. 
Here we see Susan Jordan. She's working on a dig site. She looks up and sees Dr. Jacob Thane standing on the edge, admiring the view. Susan Jordan is played by Shannon Doherty, well known for Beverly Hills 90210, also been in Airwolf, Owl House, and of course Charmed. Jacob Thane, Michael Shanks. <laughs> uh, all six episodes of SG-1, three of Atlantis, four of Universe, and of course Arc of Truth and Continuum, as well as Sanctuary, Saving Hope, Smallville, Unspeakable, and Altered Carbon. Still a very busy actor. They discuss Susan's father, who has now been missing for a month. His belief was that the Egyptians actually crossed the Atlantic, settled, or at least explored, the New World. Dr. Thane is very indifferent to this proposal. We see in the distance a young man. He stands up and waves to the Doctor, shouts him over. Marco Langford, played by J.R. Bourne. J.R. Bourne spent some time on the set of Stargate. Seven episodes of SG-1 playing Martuf. He's also been in the 100, Revenge, Arrow, and of course Team Wolf. He shows the Professor a decapitator skull. And the Professor seems a little uneasy about this. He seems more at home, trying to explain to uh, Thane about how the skull was decapitated at the neck. But uh, no, he, he's not really that interested. At this point, we're not quite sure why Thane is here. It does seem that Langford and Jordan have some chemistry between them. I think that will be explored further and further in the movie. Jacob goes back to his tent. He seems to have a bit of a crush on Susan, but he's uh, a little shy, maybe a little awkward, trying to work out what he would say to her if he were actually trying to be a bit more forward, but nah, no such luck. He grabs a bottle, takes a drink, and just slumps in his chair. A wagon comes into camp. Isaac Preston is a journalist. He's come to do a follow-up piece with the professor. Talks to Dr. Wainwright, who was the professor's assistant. Still a mystery, nobody really knows what happened to the professor after he disappeared. The fact that he had a scheduled follow-up with the press makes you wonder that, yep, his disappearance is unexpected. Isaac Preston is played by Peter New, another Stargate actor. He was only in one episode of SG-1. He's also in Psych, The Flash. Prolific voice actor, though, working on My Little Pony and Zoids Megamon. Dr. Wainwright, Hildy Wainwright, is played by Heather Dawkson. Six episodes of Stargate Atlantis, Captain Myers. Voice actress, Eternals, Lego Star Wars, also been in Battlestar Galactica, Pacific Rim, Van Helsing and many other shows. So as you can see, we're getting our money's worth for Stargate actors in this movie. At this point, Susan and Marco come up to the journalist. They know each other, probably met last time he did the interview with her father. As Isaac says, he was supposed to meet the professor known for his punctuality, so his disappearance is highly suspect. Isaac does have some of the Professor's discoveries. He was given these various objects to photograph them. He hands them over. He says it was a, a tale of a pyramid, hidden in the depths of the canyons. Marco and Susan are fascinated. Jacob totally dismisses the artifacts as Egyptian, identifies them as probably Aztec. Susan's not very happy about this. She asks Isaac, where did you last see your father? And he says, Marilia, small cantina in the town. And she says she's off to go and track him down. So the adventure begins. That night, however, Dr. Wainwright creeps into Isaac's tent while he's asleep. A bit suspicious, especially when she starts looking through the desk drawers, looking for something. Is it some of the uh, trinkets the professor gave him? As she leans over to see about what's on the nightstand, her hair brushes his face and he wakes up. Totally wrong idea that this young woman is 
in his tent at night and basically she chastises him for it. Perfectly reasonable assumption it has to be said, but no harm done. And the next morning, Isaac, Hildy, that's Dr. Wainwright, Marco and Susan go into town. It looks like a very young town because all the buildings have got no windows. <laughs> Boom town, still waiting for the delivery of the glass. There's talk about treasure, probably significant treasure if the professor was involved. Marco is pretty much a mercenary. This is when we learn a bit about his backstory. He was on an expedition to the Amazon. He was the only survivor, the only one to return. Isaac has a lot of information about uh, the group, it seems. A lot of it they don't really want uh, being made public. Then to the cantina, where we meet our next Stargate actor. Darcy Laurie plays the bartender. Darcy appeared as Eamon Dunning in nine episodes of Stargate Universe. Also been on Grace Point, 19-2, Intelligence, Continuum, and Riverdale. They ask about Professor Jordan. He's reluctant to answer them. He needs description. Well, the only description they've got really is the, the locket that Susan wears around her neck. That has a picture in. So that's fortunate. However, he still claims not to know him. Up to the point that he actually draws a gun on Isaac. At this point, a gentleman stands up, introduces himself as Hugo San Martin played by Louis Javier, he did know the professor. In fact, he was the guide that took him towards the canyon. And because the local population have certain beliefs about this canyon, he went no further. He dropped the professor off and returned to town. What happened to the professor after that, he does not know, nor does he care. But for a price, he will take them as well. Walks out the saloon, then returns a minutes later with another familiar face from Stargate. Peter Kent playing Javier Bordelos. Peter is best known for being the stunt double for Arnold Schwarzenegger, so you can picture him, he's a big guy. He appeared on uh, three episodes of Stargate SG-1 as Kintak and Bacal. Quick look at IMDB, what else he's been in? Actually, quite a lot. <laughs> uh, nothing too recent. True Justice, Alcatraz, Psych, Hiccups, Human Target, Cold Squad. On the stunts front... Pretty much anything that Arnold was in. So, good career. Things take a dramatic turn for the worse. During the next scene, we see the interior of a temple and a sacrificial altar. On the altar is one of the professor's men. He's stripped to the waist, and above him, a high priest with a stone dagger, which slams into his chest. We get a close-up of the hand going into the chest cavity and a beating heart being pulled. Pretty gory, it has to be said. The locals are cheering the sacrifice, as you do. The rescue party ride on. They come across a dead horse, belonged to the professor, as luck would have it. In his saddlebags there's a journal. It has some vague directions about what he's looking for. There's also a body, one of his assistants. The next morning, Hugo and Xavier, they decide that they're not going on any further, and basically they scarper, taking all but two of the horses with them. They finally find a water source. It looks dirty. But that doesn't stop Isaac and one of the other guys from rushing headlong into it and suddenly finding that it's quicksand. Smart guys, smart. <laughs> Anyhow, this seemed to be a lot of trouble saving these people. Not that difficult, you've got plenty of ropes and reins, you should be easy to be able to pull them out, but they're really, really having trouble. So it's very fortunate that Dr. Thane suddenly appears, riding a burrow. He gets a rope, pulls the two men out, saves the day. Why did you come? I thought it was too dangerous. Academic curiosity. Of course, we know why he's there. He's not going to let Susan go into danger alone if he can do anything about it. 
and he certainly doesn't trust Marco. In fact, Marco is beginning to look a very shifty character. His reputation and the fact that he didn't even really try to save these two men in the quicksand isn't doing him any favours at all. But for now, everybody's okay. The next day, they come across running water. Everybody's delighted. Susan even offers an olive branch to Jacob. She's happy he's there. After all, he has probably been the uh, most resourceful of the group and he's only been with the group less than a day. They approach some cliffs and they see Aztec artwork. Very ominous. That's when the gunshots ring out. There's a guy in the hills shooting with a rifle. Susan gets close and identifies Dr. Gilmore, played by Alan C. Peterson. Alan was uh, in the episode Demons, Stargate SG-1. Huge resume. He's been in Smallville, Olympus, more recently Rising Sun and American Gods. He tells the tale of Professor's party, Professor Jordan. He went onwards, beyond the cliffs. That night they also heard drums and screams, and they never returned. Marco is desperate to go on, regardless. He's willing to take the chance to follow. However, Jacob believes that there is another way in. Maybe one safer. Marco is spending an awfully long time doing his manly throwing of the rope, trying to figure out how to climb the cliffs. He's having no luck whatsoever. Jacob, however, he looks at the artwork, the giant image of the Aztec god, and notices that it's different to what's in the book, what's in the journal. One aspect of it looks like it's been repainted a number of times. Perhaps that's the way in. And it is, indeed. Three of them travel up, and they find that there's a doorway, beautifully hidden within the artwork. Jacob opens the doorway, and the rest of the group follow him through into the labyrinth within the mountains. Looks suspiciously like where the first party were butchered, and they met whatever it was deep in the darkness. They eventually come to a dead end. Jacob realises that this is another doorway. Marco, being the idiot that he is, decides to physically try to break down what looks like a door. There is some give in it, but Jacob warns him not to. Don't take everything at face value. Unfortunately, when Dr. Gilmore goes to stop Marco, there's a click and a machete springs down, slices his head pretty much halfway through. Half of his skull is gone. He falls dead. Jacob brushes that off. He's not going to cry over spilt milk, even though it's pretty much Marco's fault. He carries on looking and realises that the way to get through the door is to solve a puzzle. Some stones have been set up. They have to be balanced, and that's the way through. On the other side of the door, we see a huge enclosed canyon, and at the far end, they spy through the binoculars the temple and the altar stone. And yet another man is being sacrificed. The high priest brings his knife down, pulls the heart out. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> they like simple plain entertainment. Suddenly the clouds accelerate across the skies, it darkens and there's a flash of lightning, and a huge winged creature appears on the altar, and it devours the sacrifice. But that was unexpected. It's at this point Professor Jordan makes his appearance. Looks a lot worse for wear. He reveals that this was a treasure hunt. No other reason for exploring these secrets. Unfortunately, there's no way out except for a circle stone, which is the key to escape. Doorway in the cliff face needs a key, and have a guess where it's kept. You've got it, the temple. <laughs> I say the gang of them. You can't really get half a dozen white people walking through this encampment, which is filled with native South Americans, and not have them stand out. But somehow, they get to the base of the temple, and they see a couple of warrior guards. Jacob distracts them with his watch, creating a bright reflection. They investigate, and the rest of them climb up the steps. 
Nice touch. The blood stains on the steps. That is classy. Jacob circles around and follows them up. And they all meet at the sacrificial altar. This is a pretty good set. Doesn't look particularly real, but they've got some nice tapestries, carved columns. The problem is, Isaac has got touchy-feely. He's going around exploring. Hits one of the columns and the trap is tripped. The entire floor kind of folds back on itself and the rest of the party falls through into a pit. Clouds come rushing in, the skies darken, lightning strikes, and a lot of the native guards appear. They corner Isaac, spears and arrows pointed at him. We're all going to die, we're all going to die, he says. And then they look up in terror and they run away. That's when we see the rather poor CGI, large winged reptile type creature. It's got talons and horns and it makes your work of Isaac. Half of his body falls into the pit at the feet of the rest of them. Jacob believes that the beast is Quetzalcoatl, the god of the Aztecs. Interesting that the natives appear to be as frightened by him as anybody. Thanks once again to Jacob's steadiness. They escape from the pit, find themselves in the labyrinth. They're making their way through. We hear some of the backstory of Jacob, how he became enamoured with Aztec culture thanks to his father, even though he's never been to Mexico before. They get to a dead end, and unfortunately, the professor, he trips another trap, and one of the guides gets hit by an arrow with poison. He's not long for this world. At this point, Marco is firing on some of the native warriors. His solution to everything is basically to kill it or blow it up. Not always the best idea. Gotta say that this group are not really built for cooperation. Everybody is there for selfish reasons, looking out for themselves before anybody else. Even Jacob, who's making decisions for the group, is doing it for Susan. Anyhow, time is running out, the guards are closing in, but it's Susan herself who makes a leap, grabs the, <laughs> the magic stick, puts it into the escape hole. It trips the door, and it opens up, and they manage to get out of the labyrinth. Just in time. Strangely enough, the warriors don't seem to know how to get through this doorway. I wonder if it's mainly for the priesthood secret passageways, etc, etc. Either way, Dunbar is near death. Jacob, I won't say gives him CPR, but he's trying to beat his chest. Dunbar is played by Toby Burner. He appeared in the Stargate SG-1 episode Morpheus. Hasn't been in a lot of shows over the years. Precise that show, Jeremiah, Psych, Human Target and Smallville. I've definitely seen some of them. Anyhow, as if by magic, even though he's been poisoned with a drug that'll basically shut down respiration, he's brought back to life. Jacob the Miracle Worker. Marco and Hildy are still desperate to find the treasure room. That's the only reason they've come on this expedition, not to save the Professor. Along with Jacob, they manage to subdue one of the warriors, and they find a depository of fancy weapons, trinkets, and Jacob warns them, don't take anything. This is the property of their god. I think I'd trust him on this, you know. There's enough going on, they've seen enough to know that this is dangerous, but... Come on, we know that Hildy and definitely Marco are going to nick whatever they can put in their pockets. Do not disturb anything. I think we've paid our way. This treasure belongs to them. Do not disturb anything. We're looking for the key. A round circular stone with pictographs on it large enough to fit in the recess of that doorway, and that is all. Suit yourself. Meanwhile, the professor and his daughter have a bonding moment. What he considered to be a little bit of indifference when she was growing up wasn't. He always kept an eye on her, always was interested in what she was doing. He can't really criticise her because she's come to save him. At this point, Hildy does find the keystone. Although we do see her slipping something into her satchel. 
that's going to come back and bite the last few survivors of this rescue party, that's for sure. Marco, though, is a bit confused because Jacob's still in the treasure room looking for something. And Susan goes in to find out what he's looking for. Jacob is very flustered. Almost looks like he's not quite sure what he's doing, what he's looking for. Susan questions him and he finally admits that he's not here for a father. He's not here for the treasure. He's not here to extend his knowledge of the Aztecs. He's here for Susan and only her. She is a little surprised, but quite warm to the idea. We saw early on that the two didn't really seem to get on, or at least there was something about him that she didn't like. I think his more direct, action-orientated persona that's coming out when somebody he cares for is threatened is actually bringing them closer together. Of course, when a couple make this sort of commitment, something bad's going to happen. And yes, thunder rolls, lightning flashes. That normally heralds the return of Quetzalcoatl, or however you pronounce it. <laughs> and all hell breaks loose. The beast is amongst them, it slays one of the native warriors, Hildy takes the opportunity to get through the door, she's got the keystone with her, and she's corpus, she does a typical aliens. <laughs> oh god, I hope something bad happens to her. Meanwhile, the professor, he sees that his daughter's gonna die, he draws away the beast with the flaming torch and kneels in the ground, offering himself as a sacrifice, so that his daughter and her friends can get away. Susan, of course, is screaming as Jacob drags her, but the professor's sacrifice was not in vain. They do get away. Not many of them left, is there? <laughs> I have got to say that the beast, though, looks pretty good in very low light levels. A lot of it shot in silhouette, so the lack of texturing and detail and the more jerky movements are very well hidden. When you see the beast in reasonable lighting, it doesn't look good, but in the caves, shot against a very high light source, it looks pretty good. Right then, Jacob has been split from the party. He's on his own. Hildy, she's on her own. And the rest of them finally get out into the main canyon. So they've only got to get past a couple of hundred natives. No worries. The location shooting in this, well, got to be a quarry, ain't it? They use a very tight viewing angle. Clearly indicates that it's real scenery. It's a real location. Greensmen have been at work. Uh, rocks, boulders, monoliths, plinths, that sort of thing gives it a very realistic look. It's only when they go to the wide shots where it's blatantly obvious it's CGI, a bit of green screen work, and that doesn't look so good. But if the cameraman keeps it tight and the director lets you focus in on one point of the action, it's pretty good. Now Susan, Dunbar and Malcolm try to traverse the canyon. It looks like Dunbar's gonna get the short end of the stick. He's got a serious leg wound, and Marco, well, we know what sort of man he is. He leaves him there. Puts him down, makes a run for it. The cries of Dunbar alert the natives. They swarm the area. And hey, they've got a new sacrifice. Well done, Marco. You'll pay. Don't worry. <laughs> You'll pay. Where's Dunbar? They killed him. How? This is no time. We gotta go. Let's go. It looks like Jacob has found his way into the rear of the temple. There's a lot of ceramic jars and within each of them is a heart. Ugh. He sticks his hand in and comes comes out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, get the picture. In a surprising twist, we see that the natives have captured Hildy. Uh, they didn't actually show us. She just appeared being dragged towards the altar along with Dunbar. A double sacrifice. Great days for the Aztec people. Will we lose these two or will somebody intervene? They get to the altar, ladies first. Hildy is 
dragged across the stone, pushed down. That's when Susan and Marco observe the event. Susan sees Dunbar, who Marco says died. So suddenly she's realised that all the bad things she's heard about Marco are true. He's not a very nice guy. He lies and he's willing to sacrifice whoever it is for his own personal gain. She's hell-bent on saving her friends. Marco, not so much. As Hildy is pleading for her life, Jacob makes his appearance at the rear of the temple. He speaks Nahuatl, but he offers himself in exchange. The priest explains that their god is only appeased by blood sacrifices. If they don't offer strangers, then he just takes from their own population, which isn't good. Jacob's got a plan. He walks to the front of the altar, takes a stone knife, rips his shirt open, and slices out his own heart. Places it into one of the offering bowls, and then collapses. Okay, been a while since I've seen this film. I don't remember that. <laughs> I've got a feeling, no, we've seen him with the heart. Where could he have kept one? Surely he hasn't killed himself. How could you cut your own heart out and still be standing there ten seconds later? <laughs> well, it's all go. Susan sees the sacrifice and screams. Attracts the attention of some warriors who grab her. Marco lunges towards them but takes an arrow to the chest for his trouble. Susan then gets hit in the arm. She rips the arrow out and stabs another warrior in the neck with it. Well, <laughs> you know, vicious. And then Marco, he dies. Susan makes a run, a beeline for the altar, straight up the temple steps. Good cardio, that is. And gets to the top, where Jacob is lying prone on the floor. We get a close-up of his face for quite a bit, before his eyes flutter open. He looks up, then stands up. The supplicants bow down or cower down before him. This is excellent value for money entertainment. The priest is still bowing before him. Everybody seems amazed. He confirms that they've still got the key. And very, very slowly, he gathers up Hildy, Dunbar and Susan and gradually walks down the steps. They've got to keep this illusion going because he didn't cut his heart out. <laughs> I think we always knew that. It was just one hell of a performance. The priest stands up, looks around, and then a couple of warriors come forth and Professor Jordan is with them. How many times have we seen this guy probably die or should have died and yet, nope, he's still there. So now another dilemma for Susan and the rest of the party. Do they carry on or do they try to save the professor? Oh, now this is interesting. Jacob actually believes that by willingly sacrificing himself, the professor gained the respect of Quixie Cortal, which also explains how Jacob himself survived. Self-sacrifice is noble. The fact that they survived that sacrifice, that's godlike. So when Hildy tries to make a break for it and they start infighting, Jacob is really annoyed because they're not acting in a godlike fashion. And that's of course when the warriors decide that sod this and grab the people and drag them back up to the altar. Jacob cries out in the native language, release them. When the priest ignores him, he rushes up to the temple and starts smashing things. Hildy takes his opportunity to make a break for it. I don't think she's going far, but I think she's got the keystone. So, <laughs> they better keep an eye on her. What's he doing? He's desecrating the temple. For the love of God, why? I think because he believes this will bring out their God, who will be in a bad mood. And as we've seen, he takes his bad moods out on his own people, which may give the white devils a chance to escape. And yes, pulse of light, and in the sky, the great beast god appears wings flapping against the night he's here he means business as day turns into night the great god dive bombs his followers slashing and ripping people to shreds 
He then makes an appearance on top of the temple, right in front of Jacob. Oh, there seems to be a connection. The god spews some green, funky liquid, and Jacob, he dodges, but not before he gets smacked by a clawed hand and goes flying straight into a, well, a concrete wall. Meanwhile, Hildy makes it to the doorway. The keystone doesn't fit, and no offence to her, but she's not thinking straight, so the first thing she does now is start to hit the door, and we've seen these doorways are booby-trapped. And for no reason that we can obviously discern, huge boulders fall on top of her. Squish. Serves her right. Meanwhile, back at the temple, Jacob is still fighting a god. How very Daniel Jackson of him. The contest continues. It looks like Jacob's formulated a plan. There's a lot of loose boulders at the top of the temple. He throws a couple of rocks at him, dislodges him, and as the great god comes under the archway, partially collapses and rains down huge rocks and stones which crushes the beast. It lies there, breathing heavily, seriously wounded. Jacob takes the knife out that his father gave him and slashes his throat. Jacob, the giant beast killer. Not sure how to put money on this, but <laughs> well done. Now what though? While this beast may have indeed been the scourge of these people, it was their god. How will they react? The people are bowing, still in awe at the death of their vengeful god. But the priest, he is willing to let the rest of them go. Except for Jacob, because, well, Jacob has finally set out his stall as being immortal. And when you're in the market for a new god, an immortal human being fits the bill pretty darn well. So there's Jacob is. He's willing to give his the rest of his life so that the rest of them can get away. Or more importantly, for Susan, so she can live a life. What are you doing? Go now while you can. I'm not leaving you here. You don't have a choice, and neither do I. They think I'm their god now. How long do you think that's going to work for you? Walk and talk as if... even though things are not. Well, by any stretch of the imagination, that's a pretty good heroic act by Jacob. Unfortunately, the film kind of ruins the atmosphere it built up by about two minute sequence of flashbacks. Basically every scene that Jacob has featured with Susan Yes, we get the idea that there was a romance budding there of something that could have been, which isn't going to be. But was the running time a bit tight? Did they need it? A little bit extra padding? I'm pretty sure they could have conveyed exactly what they wanted to do in one 15 second clip. Anyhow, the natives go to the doorway. They dig out Hildy, who's still alive. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> Huge poultice fell on top of her body. Yet she's unharmed. And she actually flirts a little with one of the young native guys. We've seen him before in the movie, and she'd made eye contact with him before, so is this Hildy's path? The glory-seeking, treasure-seeking archaeologist is now going to be staying with these natives and living a life of peaceful existence under the all-knowing gaze of the god Jacob. <laughs> right, we see a slow pan of the outside of the canyon, and three people come out of the secret doorway. Susan, her father and Dunbar. They make it about 50 yards further into the canyon, and then there's a shout, and Jager comes scrambling out of the doorway, running hell for leather. He has actually managed to escape. <laughs> His shirt's all torn up. We see the mild-mannered academic has definitely changed his spots. Muscles rippling everywhere, self-confidence oozing out of him, and he tells a tale of how he managed to escape. He manipulated the natives into believing he died, 
by uh, basically getting into a suit of armor and setting the armor on fire. Of course, by that point, he'd actually gotten out of the armor again. So while they were watching the display of their god being burnt alive, he successfully managed to get out along with the keystone, which when they hold it up to the light, looks remarkably like a sink plug because it's round, slightly tapered, and it's got a big gold chain on it. <laughs> it looks like a giant sink plug. Oh dear. Uh. <laughs> and, and then he whistles and his burrow comes could be a burrow, could be a straight plain donkey either way it's been waiting for him and it up it trots ah this guy a marvel he is Susan goes to Jacob snuggles up to him and the party then sets off moving off into the distance as camera pans across the vista we fade away and the credits roll and that was The Lost Treasure of the Grand Canyon as a B-movie, I have no real problems with it. Some of the choices made by the actors were interesting. Some of the dialogue were a little bit uh, cliched. The location shooting was pretty good. The CGI monster, godlike being, looked very good in low light conditions. Uh, when you got a good look at it, the lack of texturing and detail let it down a little. I uh, don't think Shannon Doherty or Michael Shanks were really pushed very far. J.R. Bowen did an excellent, yeah, bad guy. He was not a nice guy. It was a bit unbelievable how many times these people should have died, but somehow survived. Definitely also some white saviour trope going on here. The native population saved by the white man. Not sure how that's it these days, but... Oh, and they also stole the keystone, which Jacob said belongs to the professor. No, it belongs to the native people who you stole it from. And then this sort of movie isn't going to worry too much about that. Overall, though, pretty entertaining. Could have been better, but could have been a hell of a lot worse. Right then, folks, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. If you can find a copy of The Lost Treasure of the Grand Canyon, you give it a go. It ain't too bad. If you want to leave a review or rating of some sort uh, for the podcast or listen to our other shows, we can find our listings on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbay, Google, Amazon Music. We are on Tumblr and Facebook could do a search for The Gatecast and we're on Twitter at The Gatecast Twitter is our main social media portal that's where I do most of my work spend most of my time have more followers on there than Facebook, Tumblr combined been very nice to us there's a good community of Stargate fans on there okay then, what's coming up next? Uh, I'm sure I can dig out something I haven't had a look yet I've still got more locks I might do more in fact I will our next show will be Morlock starring David Hewlett and Robert Picardo. There we go then. Hopefully that'll be out within a week, if not a couple of days later than that. I'm trying to keep up a nice, steady, regular release schedule for Stargate Theatre. So far I've been managing to do a weekly show. A bit of a miracle, really. Anyhow, thank you for listening. Hope you join me for more episodes of Stargate. If you do want to join me, of course, please get in touch. Stargatearchives at gmail.com The email address, stargatearchives.com is our web address. If you want to talk about Stargate, pick an episode, fantastic. If you've got a B-movie that features Stargate actors and that's what you'd like to talk about, we'll do that as well. Okay then, I've been Mike. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>